Morning. Uh, it's great to be back amongst you uh, this morning. Um, many of you uh, know myself and Helena. Uh, for those who don't, uh, we were part of the church here until uh, about three years ago. Uh, we left to uh, go and pursue studies at a seminary in the U.S. to train for ministry. Um, and after seven months there, uh, COVID came along um, and changed our plans. So now we're continuing uh, in our ministry training, uh, now based in Dundee at Central Baptist Church there, and I'm continuing studies online. Um, so first of all, let me uh, thank you for your support for us over these years. Um, I know many of you have been praying for us and supporting us in, in many ways. Um, and so we're very grateful both to you as a church family together, um, as well as the many individuals who've been supporting us as we seek to be equipped and trained uh, for gospel ministry uh, for many years to come. Uh, that's the goal and the aim. Um, we're turning in our Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to be uh, speaking from uh, verses 18 to 26. So if you have a Bible uh, in front of you uh, or on your phone, do uh, turn it on or look it up uh, to Matthew chapter 9. And let me read uh, from verse 18 through to 26. Matthew 9 and from verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said to them, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, and because you love us, you speak to us. And so we pray that now as we consider these words of Matthew's Gospel together, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would help all of us, wherever we are in our understanding of the Lord Jesus, wherever we are in trusting him or being tempted to give up on him. We pray, Father, that this morning you would turn our eyes back to him, that you would help us to invest our whole lives on him because we know that we can trust him so would you do that this morning in our hearts by your spirits and through your word we pray in his name amen well i wonder if you've ever had to buy a present for a friend or a family member who just doesn't seem to need anything they already have everything that they could possibly need there's nothing really that they want they don't have any great needs in life. Or at least, there's no needs that you could think about meeting with the gifts that you're getting them for their birthday or for Christmas. Their need isn't some material thing. They have everything they could need, and yet, 
what they really so desperately need. Perhaps it's a relationship, a spouse. It's not something I could give them wrapped up for Christmas. Perhaps it's a child, the family that they always longed to have. Perhaps it's a career move, a promotion, a different job to get out of the toxic environment. It's not something I can wrap up and put under the tree. Well, all of us are needy, aren't we? Though we might have needs that can be met in different ways that won't be met by the giving of a gift from a friend or a family member. All of us have great and deep needs, don't we? It's what advertisers spend billions exploiting because they know that deep down we all feel these desperate needs that need to be met. So what's your great need this morning? How could it be met? What's holding you back from having it met? Here in Matthew chapter 9, we meet three desperately needy people. And holding nothing back, they enter into two encounters with Jesus, all of it demonstrating for us one glorious Savior. Three needy people, two encounters with Jesus, one glorious Savior. This episode that we've just read here in Matthew 9, it comes in the midst of a a carefully arranged collage of miracles that Matthew has has put together for us that make up the whole of chapters 8 and 9 in his gospel. If you've got a Bible in front of you, just look through chapters 8 and 9 there and we see miracle after miracle that Jesus performs. Just before this collage of miracles, Jesus in chapters 5 through 7 has delivered the famous Sermon on the Mount. In doing so, he's demonstrated his messianic authority, that he is God's sent one. He's shown that authority by his words. And then immediately after finishing the sermon, Matthew follows up with nine rapid but remarkable episodes. Jesus shows us his authority in his works. First his words in the Sermon on the Mount, and then his works in chapters 8 and 9. And by Jesus' authority, which he wields through his words, he brings about tangible results in the domain which he rules. Matthew's shown us the extent of that domain as we, if we were to read through these two chapters. We see Jesus' authority extending over every imaginable realm, over the natural world and the supernatural world, over disease and paralysis. At the beginning of chapter 9, the episodes just before we're looking at today, Jesus has healed a paralytic, and he's shown that he has authority even to forgive sins. And in between these authority-demonstrating miracles, in the middle of chapter 8 and near the beginning of chapter 9, we get two snippets as Jesus teaches us what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? Those who would follow Jesus, they must leave everything and embrace a holy new life with him. And so that's the question that Jesus is, that Matthew's addressing as he shows us this next episode in his gospel. What does Jesus' authority look like? That's what these two chapters are all about. What does Jesus' authority look like? And how does Jesus wield it? And so we see three needy people in two encounters with one glorious saviour. These two stories that we've just read, Matthew weaves them together for us. The raising of a little girl, 
and the healing of a desperate woman. Why does Matthew put these two together for us? Well, partly it's because that's the way it happened, isn't it? As we trace through the historical accounts here that Matthew's recording, these two events happened at the same time. But Matthew's not just presenting to us a historical sequence of all the events of Jesus' life lined up in order. He's laying out for us in these two chapters an anthology of miracles from Jesus' life. He's building up a mosaic for us of Jesus' authority. And so why leave these two interweaved? Why not cut out the healing of the woman and put it with all the other healings that he records in this chapter and allow the light to shine all the more fully on that even more impressive feat of raising the dead to life? Why does Matthew present these two to us together? Well, clearly he wants us to understand them together, doesn't he? These two episodes, the healing of a desperate woman, the raising of a dead girl, they're united by desperate need. And so that first needy person appears, even as Jesus is still teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. Do you see that in verse 18? While he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. Here's a man who was a leader, a great man. The other Gospels tell us that he was a synagogue leader. He was a man of great religious importance in this town. But here in Matthew, he's just, in the broadest sense, a leader. As expected in a town like this that's dominated by Judaism, this man's influence spreads far beyond the walls of the synagogue. And yet, for all his social standing, this man's world has just shattered. Underneath all the layers of respectability beats an ordinary human heart. And so whilst he might be a ruler, more fundamentally he's simply a father whose daughter has just died. And surely a man like this has officiated enough funerals at the synagogue to know that this isn't the kind of loss that anyone just gets over. His heart is broken. He knows it will never be healed. Except, well, maybe, just possibly, he thinks, there's a man. Everyone's been talking about him. He heals people. He drives out demons. He makes paralyzed people walk. Maybe, just maybe, and so this desperate man falls at the feet of Jesus. My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so this needy man introduces our second needy person. If this devastated father was needy, well surely his little girl is even more so. Matthew is sparse on the details, isn't he? No name. No age, no description of what this girl was like, just one undeniable, unavoidable, hard fact. Whoever this little girl was, she isn't anymore. 
in the first century, people were far more intimately acquainted with death than almost any of us in a room like this would be. They, all, they know all too well the difference between a girl who's sleeping and a girl who's dead. The memories for them, perhaps like for some of us, they're just far too painful to ever forget the difference. And so later on in the passage, when Jesus gently and softly reassures this grieving father that his daughter will wake up, how does the crowd respond? Did you see that in verse 24? They laugh at him. This crowd knows perfectly well. There's no doubt here. This little girl, she's gone. It's over. Her case is hopeless. And so this little girl could not be any more needy, could she? She couldn't be any more desperate. And when her father tells Jesus about her great need, he gets up and he goes to help. And then enters needy person number three, a desperate woman suffering from some kind of health condition, probably gynecological, something that's made her bleed for 12 years. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, to suffer any kind of chronic ailment for 12 years. But all the more so when it's something that makes you in a Jewish society ceremonially unclean unable to participate in worship at the temple, excluded from society. This woman, she's done absolutely nothing wrong, and yet for 12 years has been an outcast, an outsider in her hometown. This wasn't how it was meant to be. This wasn't the life she dreamed of when she was a little girl. And so now, what she always thought would be the best years of her life, they've been spent in misery, a lonely life, every longed-for joy stripped away. And so now, here she is, desperate, desperate to be healed, desperate to be cleansed, desperate to be accepted, to be included once more. Three people each of them in desperate needs. And what does Jesus, this man of great authority and power, what does he say to desperate people who come to him for help? Does he say to this man, I'm I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm really busy teaching here. Does he say to the woman, don't you know I'm much too important to notice people like you? Just a few verses ago in verses 12 and 13, Jesus proclaims that he came for needy people. Just look at those verses, verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has proclaimed that he came for needy, sick people and so now we see is he just a bag of hot air or is he a king of substance we've seen enough haven't we in recent weeks to put us off self-proclaimed leaders for life 
The kind of leader who would speak into the cameras about suffering alongside the nation. We're all in this together, they say. And then the cameras turn off. And those same leaders are hosting private parties at the expense of those who couldn't visit dying family members. We've seen, haven't we, the kind of leaders who would send young men off to war in pursuit of a small gain in the polls. Leaders who would command the shelling of hospitals and homes, all in pursuit of a personal vanity project. They talk the good talk, and then they squash the little people to get their own way. Is Jesus another one of those leaders? Just look at how Jesus deals with desperate, inconvenient people. He gets up, and he goes with a desperate father to the bedside of her dead daughter. He goes to a dead girl and brings her back to life. And even as Jesus is en route on this urgent rescue mission, even as life and death hang in the balance for this great healer, a desperate woman approaches, an outcast, unwanted by all. And look at verse 22. Jesus stops. He sees her, he talks to her, and he makes her well. Do you see what Matthew's showing us in this short episode? Needy people come to Jesus, and they find a welcome that they wouldn't dare to dream of. Needy people come to Jesus, and we find a welcome that we wouldn't imagine in our wildest dreams. That's the reality, isn't it? Beneath all our careful profile curation online, beneath all our outward show on a Sunday morning, beneath all our respectability that we like to show other people, all the walls that we put up to protect ourselves, we're just needy, desperate people, aren't we? With broken hearts, overwhelmed by grief, crushed by the disappointments of life, eaten by anger, exhausted and weary, anxious and guilty. Needy people come to Jesus and find a welcome that we wouldn't dare to imagine in our wildest dreams. Are you here this morning and you've never received this kind of welcome from Jesus? I wonder if you think that you could never come to Jesus because of what you've done in the past. Because of something about who you are. Because of all the baggage that you would bring with you. Well, this is the invitation from Jesus, isn't it? Come to me. Bring all of your needs. Just lay them before me. I came for people just like you. For those of us who have known this welcome, who've been following Jesus for some time... Do you see that our ongoing failures and failings, they don't need to keep us away from Jesus. Jesus is never too busy for a sinner who's seeking some help. He's never grumpy at an interruption. 
All our weakness can only uh, unlock new depths to his compassion. Our deepest and most desperate needs, they would all be drowned, wouldn't they, by a single drop from the ocean of his goodness and love. For those who've been Christians for some decades, I wonder if when you started the Christian race, did you think by the time you got to where you were now that you wouldn't be quite so needy anymore? Well, we never outgrow our needs, do we? We never get beyond being needy, desperate people. And Jesus never tires of us coming to him with all our needs and laying them at his feet. Three needy people, and they come into two encounters with Jesus. Again, we ask that question that we thought about before. Why has Matthew interwoven these two episodes? There's a common thread, isn't there, of need and desperation that we've been thinking about. But there's another linking theme here. At first glance, this ruler and the woman... They couldn't be any more different, could they? One stands at the pinnacle of society and the other is an outcast, forgotten by all. One is respected by all and the other is unnoticed. One is a father with a beloved daughter. The other all alone in the world. And yet for all their differences, these two are both united by wonky faith in Jesus. The ruler comes to Jesus and says, come and lay your hand on my daughter and she will live. But at the beginning of this anthology of miracles, back in chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, Matthew recorded for us the healing of a centurion servant. Jesus doesn't need to go and touch a dead girl to make her live. His authority is all in his words. As that centurion grasped so readily, Jesus only needs to speak and he will make things so. That was the point that Jesus made so much of at the beginning of chapter 8. This centurion had unique, unprecedented faith because he recognized not only that Jesus had authority, but that he had authority to speak and make things so. That centurion had 20-20 faith vision. This leader, on the other hand, he sees, but it's all a bit foggy, isn't it? He sees Jesus, he knows that Jesus can help him, but he doesn't see with the sharp focus of the centurion. He thinks Jesus needs to come to lay hands on. He's only got the faintest idea of who Jesus is and how he can help, and yet, yet he's trusting in Jesus With the woman, it's far less subtle, isn't it? But that's why these two are together. Each one reinforces the other. Just as the ruler came to Jesus, mixing right and wrong notions of who he is, so comes this woman. Look at verse 20. This woman thinks that if she can just touch a tassel on Jesus' cloak, she'll be made well. She has a superstitious view of Jesus' power. Whatever kind of vision the ruler had, this woman, she's at least half blind. 
And yet, although she doesn't understand how she can be healed by encountering Jesus, she reaches out to the real Jesus for help. She touches his garments, thinking that somehow that touch and that tassel will make her well. She comes to Jesus with a messy mixture of faith and superstition. And after she touches Jesus' cloak, he makes plain to her what's just happened, doesn't he? Look at verse 22. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't your touching. It wasn't my cloak. It wasn't your superstitious misunderstanding. But your faith has made you well because your faith was in me. It's not the purity of our faith that helps us. It's not the soundness of our understanding of Jesus that saves us. No, it's Jesus, isn't it? I didn't start wearing glasses until I was about 20, halfway through university. And my eyesight had gradually deteriorated over the previous years in a way that I'd never really noticed what was going on. And so when I sat my driving test, I had to squint and really strain to read the number plate at a distance. But of course I thought, if it was easy to read a number plate at that distance, they wouldn't bother testing it, would they? Eventually, a few years later, I got my glasses, and only then did I realize just how bad my eyesight had always been. Did you know it's possible to make out the individual leaves on a tree that's down the street? To count the slates on a roof? I had no idea. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And yet, through those first two years of university when I wasn't wearing glasses and I really should have been, every day I got on my bike and I cycled to the engineering department. And every day I got there. Even though my eyesight was really quite questionable, never once did I cycle to the English department or to the medical school. My fuzzy, unclear eyesight got me to exactly the right destination. Of course, once I got glasses, the journey became a lot better. It was more beautiful. I'm sure it was a lot safer, too, for me and others. But I still got to exactly the same place. It's not how clearly we see Jesus that saves us. It's not the quality of our faith in him. It's when our faith, with all of its wonkiness, with all of our misunderstandings, takes us to the real Jesus of the Word. The wonkiest and fuzziest faith can bring us to the real, sufficient Saviour. Just as the weakest of hands can grasp onto the richest and most beautiful jewel. And so wherever we are in our understanding of who Jesus is, In a room like this, all of us in different degrees of light and darkness. All of us, we need to come to the real Jesus and to seek the help that only he can give us. All of us, no matter how many times we've read through the Bible, however long we've been listening to sermons, we've all got wonky faith, don't we? But that wonky faith need not keep us away from Jesus. Are there some questions you have, some things about Jesus that you don't yet understand? There always will be. 
So don't wait until you've answered every question before you come to Jesus. He's big enough for you to take all your questions, all your doubts, all your misunderstandings, and to come to him. He always delights in our trust and forgives us our wrong thinking. Perhaps you've been a Christian a while. You've still got some pretty significant questions about who Jesus is, about how he can save us. Well, don't let that lack of certainty and understanding lead you away from trusting in this one who's big enough to deal with our uncertainty. Just as you are, perhaps feeling confused, full of doubt, unsure, take it all to Jesus. However unclear your faith vision is, keep on looking, squinting if you need to, to Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Keep turning to him. 500 years ago, there lived a French pastor by the name of John Calvin. And if anyone has thought and written comprehensively about Jesus, surely it's this man, Calvin. As he reflected on these two encounters of wonky faith with Jesus, he wrote this, We cannot go beyond the limits in believing, for our faith will not grasp on to the hundredth part of the goodness of God, however full it be. Our faith will not grasp on to the hundredth part of the goodness of God, however full it be. No matter how clearly we understand who Jesus is, no matter how deep we see that his grace goes, we're all of us only playing in the shallows. He's always better than we could imagine him to be. His welcome is always warmer. His patience is always longer. His humility is always greater. His heart is always more willing. Three needy people in two encounters of wonky faith meet one glorious saviour. We've seen, haven't we, how Jesus responds to needy people with wonky faith. And Matthew puts on display for us Jesus' amazing character and his awesome power. We've seen, haven't we, Jesus' character when this ruler asks Jesus to come and lay his hand on his daughter so that she would live. Jesus doesn't say, actually, I only need to speak and say the words. No, he doesn't scold this man's misunderstanding. But he meets this man just where he is and helps him to learn more. As he goes with him. There's no ticking off. There's no exasperation. Just simple delight. In helping the helpless. And so too when this woman. Touches Jesus clothes for healing. Jesus doesn't tell her off does he. For being superstitious. He doesn't rebuke her misunderstanding. What does he say. Take heart daughter. He delights in her faith and he forgives her her weakness. Jesus is far more willing to help needy people than we are to ask him for it. But Jesus is much, much more, isn't he, than a really nice man. Do you see his power here too? Remember, both these chapters, 8 and 9, they're a collage of Jesus' authority over every sphere of our existence. But no display of his power is greater than this one. 
verses 23 to 25. When Jesus uh, came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. What kind of authority wakes the dead? What kind of power gives life to the lifeless? It said that King Canute, the king of England and Denmark and Norway in the 11th century, King Canute was so powerful and so effective as a king and administrator that his courtiers began to think that he had power and authority over nature itself. And so the wise king Canute ordered his throne to be placed on the beach in between the high and low tide marks. And he sat in his throne as the tide came in and he commanded the waves saying, I command you, O sea, not to wet my limbs or my clothing. And as the tide rose, the king was soaked. Every wise ruler knows the limits of their authority. Even the most deluded tyrant is powerless in the face of death. And yet Jesus reaches into death and pulls this little girl back into the realm of the living. Do you see here is one whose authority knows no bounds. Jesus has power over sickness and death. Unimaginable goodness meets incomprehensible power. This is the glorious saviour. And in the previous healing episode to this in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 9, Jesus has diagnosed a problem that goes far deeper than any of our medical ailments that requires more urgent attention even than paralysis. Jesus, this great saviour, has shown us that the great problem we have is not our physical or emotional or mental needs. As significant as those things are, as, as deep as Jesus' compassion goes, He tells us our great problem is that we are sinners. We are creatures made by God for his delight. But we've turned against him. We've sought to remove his authority from our lives. All of us rebels against the ruler of the universe. And the sentence for such rebellion is death. What else could happen when mortal creatures shun the source of all life and goodness? The Bible will tell us that in our sin, every one of us is as dead as this little girl. Every one of us is excluded and desperate as this woman. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This king of compassion and authority, by his own death on the cross, took God's punishment that we deserved and rose from the grave, defeating death forever. And so now this great king offers to us eternal life, to be adopted by God as his own children forever. This king who can reach into death and pull us out, 
all Jesus' miracles demonstrate that he is the Messiah. He really is God's king. He was sent to save his people from their sins. And so all of us who would trust in him now can know life with him now and forever. This is, isn't it, our glorious saviour, the one who has authority over sin and death, the two problems that no money, no relationship, no experience and no moral efforts can save us from. And so with all your weakness, with all your hurting, with all your uncertainty and your doubts, with all your sin that you feel so acutely, come and follow this glorious Saviour. Those who follow Jesus for any length of time, we know that the Jesus who's presented in this passage is the same gracious Saviour that we can know every day of our lives. This isn't false advertising with some small print to match. This is the grace that Jesus shows to us every morning as we wake up and offers to us every day as we go through our lives. Charles Spurgeon, the most famous preacher of the 19th century, he was no stranger to suffering. He had regular bouts of severe depression. He battled various acute health issues, often requiring months of the year off work. Though he was a man who was larger than life, his troubles and needs were equally large. And on the 7th of June, 1891, he closed his final public sermon with these words. Spurgeon said, Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it too. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him, blessed be his name, and I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below, if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter upon it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word shows us in all of our needs, in all of our half-misunderstanding, half-understanding, it shows us the real Jesus, the one that we can turn to, the one that we can trust, the one that we can know. So help us, we pray, Father, to have our trust in him renewed, to look to him in all our needs, never to be drawn away from him, but always deeper into his compassion and grace. Help us to come with our great needs for forgiveness, for life, to come to him and find a welcome that we could never imagine. And so we pray in his name. Amen.
Uh, we're going to uh, sing now, I stand amazed in the presence, and then our service will be over.